If you were to approach me when I was a child and say, Graham, tell me about the story of Jonah. My guess is I would not be able to tell you much. My response would probably be, oh, Jonah, is that story in the Bible about that guy who got swallowed by that big fish? And that's probably it. I actually tested this out on Ava a few weeks ago. I, I asked her to tell me the story of Jonah, and this is what she said, and I quote. She says, Jonah went the wrong way and got swallowed by a big fish. And that's it, Dad. That's it. Those were her exact words to me. And, and that's all a lot of us know about this story. When we think about Jonah, we often think about Jonah in the fish. We think of it as like this cutesy little story, like the three little pigs or Little Red Riding Hood that we are told as kids. Maybe some of you, when you heard we are studying through the book of Jonah, thought to yourselves, why are we studying a kid's story? But what you find when you really take time to study the book of Jonah is you find that Jonah is so much more than a story about a fish. And that's what we're going to discover this morning and for the next several weeks as we study through this great book. We are going to learn that there are some great truths that we can take away from this small book. So let's look at the book of Jonah. Turn in your Bibles to Jonah, and you'll find, unless you have it marked, that it's not easy to get to. One option is to turn to the table of contents, see what page it's on. Don't be too proud to do that every now and again. Another option is to go to Matthew and start flipping backwards, but you have to be real careful that you don't flip right over it because it's very small. In my Bible, Jonah takes up two pages. So it's a very small book. And I can also tell you it's in between Obadiah and Micah, but I doubt that would help some of you much more than that. But however you get there, get there, okay? The book of Jonah. Before we jump into Jonah chapter 1, I want to take a moment to give you a bit of a background on the story. First, let's talk about the author of Jonah. Now, this book is anonymous, but many early Jewish and Christian scholars believe that Jonah wrote this short narrative shortly after his ministry in Nineveh. Now, that's debated, but that's what many of the conservative scholars believe. A little bit about the audience. Scripture tells us that Jonah's ministry took place during the time of Jeroboam II, who was a ruler in the northern kingdom of Israel. So it's likely that Jonah wrote this book to the people of Israel. Uh, the date on Jonah, a good date is probably the late 700s B.C. Some say it's around 780 B.C. was when it was written. Uh, the type of book, Jonah is a prophetic book. It's the fifth of 12 minor prophet books. Now, it's important to note that, uh, note why Jonah and the other 11 books from this section of Scripture are labeled as minor prophets. Now, it's not because these were, were lesser than, than the major prophets. These prophets were not the second stringers. 
They were not the farm team of prophets. That's not why we call these books minor prophets. It's because of their size. It's because of their size. To give you an example, Jonah is four chapters, minor prophet. Isaiah is 66 chapters. It's a big difference, right? So it's just a way of of classifying the books is why they're referred to as minor prophets. Now, let's talk just a moment about the style of the book because this is very important. Though Jonah is a prophetic book, it is unique to the prophets because Jonah is a narrative. Jonah is a narrative. It's an account of what happened to this prophet named Jonah when he was called by God to go to Nineveh. So it's a a narrative. It's an autobiography. Many of the other prophetic books, they don't read in this way. Most of the prophetic books, if you turn to them and read them, they're much more sermonic than they are narrative. Most of them are largely made up of sermons and messages and illustrations given by the prophets to the people of God. The book of Jonah is not. It's unique. It's less preachy. It tells a story. And within this story, we find several key truths. That's what we're going to discuss for the next four weeks. There are four chapters in Jonah. So we're going to take a chapter a week, and we're going to talk about the main truth that we learn from each of these chapters. This morning, we're in chapter 1, Jonah chapter 1, and the main truth from chapter 1 is that God is sovereign. As we've talked about already, Jonah is so much more than a book about a fish. Jonah is about a sovereign God. It's about a God who is in control. Now be honest, how important is this truth for us today? This past fall, there were many concerned about who was going to be in control of our country. Which party was going to be in control of Congress and who was going to be in the White House, and you had candidates going back and forth making these promises. If I'm in control, I'm going to do this. If I'm in control, I'm going to do that. But the truth of the matter is, God is ultimately in control. He is. You cannot turn anywhere in in the Scriptures and not find this truth. It's a theme that runs throughout the Bible, and it's a theme that we find in Jonah chapter 1. So let's look at it. Jonah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. So the book begins by telling us that the word of the Lord came to Jonah. God spoke to Jonah, And he said, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh, and I want you to preach against it. Now, this this element to the story here is not uncommon in prophetic books. I said a moment ago, Jonah is a unique prophetic book, but not here. In these books, you normally have an account of a prophet being called somewhere to preach. Most are called to preach against God's people, but a few of the prophets are called to leave and to go to another place, one of the surrounding areas, to preach to those nations. Jonah is an example of this. 
the Lord tells Jonah to leave Israel and to go to Nineveh, which is the capital of Assyria. God says, I want you to go to Nineveh and I want you to preach against it. Their evil has come up against me and I want you to preach to them and I want you to preach against them because of their wickedness and I want you to call for them to repent. And notice how Jonah responds. Does he respond like Isaiah? Does he say, here am I, Lord, send me? Is that what Jonah says? No. Look at verse 3. But, that's a key word here. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and he went down into it and, and, and to go with them to Tarshish away from the presence of the Lord. Now, now take a look at this map up on the screen. This will really tell the story for you. God says, Jonah, I want you to go here. A black arrow right there. I want you to go here. I want you to go east to Nineveh. And notice that Jonah doesn't just say no. In fact, the text doesn't say, he says, he doesn't say, no, Lord, I will not. Instead, we're told, he gets on a boat and he heads in the opposite direction. God says, I want you to go here. I want you to go east to Nineveh. And Jonah goes in this direction, here, west to Tarshish. Now, notice the distance between these two places. You have the, the, the length of the Mediterranean Sea dividing these two places. And notice we're told twice why Jonah does this, why he is running away. He is trying to flee from God. He is trying to run from the presence of the Lord. He is trying to get away from God. He thinks to himself, well, God is obviously in Israel because he called me out of Israel. And he's obviously in Nineveh because he plans on using me to do a work there. So I'm going to Tarshish. Maybe God won't be there. Pretty poor theology, isn't it? And this brings us to the first great theological truth we learn from Jonah chapter 1. Again, Jonah chapter 1 is about a sovereign God. And here in the first few verses, we learn God is sovereign everywhere. God is sovereign everywhere. We learn in this story that Jonah fails in his attempt to flee from the presence of God. Why? Because God is everywhere. And he is sovereign everywhere. Even if Jonah made it to Tarshish, which many of you know who read the story, you know he doesn't. Even if he made it there, you know who's there? God is. God is. God is everywhere. And he is in control everywhere. The 25 cent theological term for this is omnipresent. Omni means all, and present means here with us. God is all here with us. He is fully present everywhere. There is nowhere you can go and get away from God. David put it in this way. Psalm 139. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. The psalmist here is saying, there's nowhere we can go to get away from the presence of God. You know, we often think of God as being in heaven, don't we? It's kind of where God is, right? That's his place. And though he is there, 
He's here and He's everywhere. And He's in control there, here, and everywhere. Fully present, fully in control. And the reason why I continue to use that word fully is because all of Him is present everywhere. There's no place where you can go and flee from the full presence of God. A while back, Leslie had left to go eat with some of the ladies from our church and I was in the back room and the girls didn't know I was back there. And they began to scream and cry because they think they've been left alone. And I run out and the two are just trembling and Edie starts, you know, laughing and crying at the same time when she sees me. I mean, she's, she was terrified. You know, when you're really young, the idea of being alone the idea of not being secure, the idea of not having mom or dad there with me is, is terrifying. But what we learn from Jonah is this, believers. This is a great truth from this small book. It's that God is always and everywhere fully present. He is always with us, always near. There is no place where we can go and be lonely because God is always present in the fullest sense of the word. Now, there are several applications that we can and should make here. Number one is this. Because God is fully present, everywhere present, there is nowhere you can go and get away from God in your sin. Jonah was disobedient, and he knew it. God called him to go east, but he went west. And Jonah was hoping that he would get far enough away from God that he would be beyond God's scope. He would be beyond his sights. But we find here that that place doesn't exist, does it? God is everywhere and he sees everything. Listen, you may put on your church face to come here and fool a lot of people, but you don't fool God. You know why? Because he's with you when you leave this place. You may leave us behind, but you don't leave God behind. He's there with you. Fully present with you in your home in the workplace, in your car, behind closed doors. He even knows what's going on in here, and he knows what's going on in here. And what he knows really matters, right? Because he's the one we answer to. Believers, it's so important that we keep this truth in mind. I promise you this, continually reminding yourself of God's forever presence everywhere will affect the way you live in a good way. It will. Another application that we can take away here is this. Because God is everywhere, there are not certain places that we have to go to access Him. That's key. You don't have to go to a retreat or church camp to access and experience God. Now, you can experience Him in these places, but you can also access Him and experience Him in your home in the workplace, in your car, with your friends, with your family. There are many who think today that that church on Sunday morning is the only place where they can truly feel the, the presence of God and have access to Him. And though, though I hope you feel the presence of God here, you don't have to be in a church setting to access and experience God. No matter where you are in the world, you can experience Him because He is present everywhere. You don't need a certain person like a priest or a pastor or a lay leader to access God. You can go straight to him through Jesus. He is your priest. 
You can go to him no matter where you are because he is present everywhere. This should encourage us. Should. Believers, we, we often settle for far less than what God intends. Do you realize that? We do. We don't go to God like we should. He's waiting wherever you are, ever ready for you to spend quality time with him. When you have major decisions that you're wrestling with, God is there waiting for you to access him. When you're struggling spiritually, he is there wanting you to give your struggles over to him. When it seems as if the world is crashing down on top of you, when the storms of this life are too tough to bear, God is there waiting for you to lay your burdens before him. How encouraging is that? To know that God is near. He is in control in all places. He is sovereign everywhere. And not only is he sovereign everywhere, but he is also sovereign over everything. God is sovereign over everything. Notice what God does in response to Jonah's attempt to flee. Look at verse 4. We find another key word here, but. But Jonah fleed, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. And there was a mighty tempest on the sea so that the ship threatened to break up. God's about to tear this ship apart with the storm. So God tells Jonah, he says, Jonah, I want you to go to Nineveh. I want you to, to preach there. But Jonah, notice he doesn't just say no, he runs in the opposite direction. And when he gets on this boat and gets out in the sea, verse 4, we're told that God, in response to Jonah fleeing, hurls a great wind upon the sea and brings about this great storm. God is in control. He is so much in control that he can appoint a storm in a matter of seconds if he wants to. He is in control of all things. And this is not the only place in, in the Bible, of course, but, but even in this book that we see this truth, that God is in control of all things. Look at verse 17. And the Lord appointed, there's that word again, a great fish. God is so much in control that he can appoint a great fish to do what he wants it to do. Flip over to chapter 4, and you may not have to flip very much. Maybe on the other page. Chapter 4, verse 6. Now the Lord God appointed, there's that word again, a plant. Verse 7. But when dawn came up the next day, God did what? Appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. Look at verse 8. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind. You see, God is so much in control that he can appoint a storm, and he can appoint a great fish, and he can also appoint a plant or a little bitty worm or a scorching east wind. God is in control of all things. He is sovereign over everything. Let's keep reading. Jonah 1. Back to Jonah 1. Notice verse 5. How the men respond. When God appoints a storm, we are told the mariners were afraid. And each cried out to his God. So there are other guys on the boat with Jonah, right? He's not on the boat by himself. And these other guys are on the boat with Jonah. And they're going in the same direction toward Tarshish. And they're experiencing this great storm along with Jonah. And they're experiencing this because of Jonah. 
because God has appointed this great storm for Jonah. But these other men are also experiencing it as well, and, and they're not sure why. So they begin to question. They said, hey, who's offended who here? Notice verse 5. Again, then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God. Seems as if these men are either, either recognizing God for the first time or they had different gods that they prayed to and they're trying to figure out who needs to appease what God and they tried to also handle matters on their own. Notice uh, in, in verse, uh, notice we're told here in the following verse, they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten the load. But as they were doing these things, you know what? They noticed someone was not with them. Who was it? Look at verses 5 and 6. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. In other words, this guy comes in and goes, What are you doing? Down here sleeping. Get up. Call out to your God. Give your God a try. See if he cannot do something about this storm. Now, notice Jonah keeps quiet at first, but look at what happens, verses 7 through 8. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on, on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? So Jonah gets found out, and notice how he responds. He said to them, he said, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Now notice something here. Jonah's got a solid understanding of God here, doesn't he? He tells these men... That his God, the one true God, is the God who has made everything. Jonah had a good understanding of God, didn't he? He did. But his problem was, he didn't live like it. Notice the middle of this verse. Jonah says, I fear the Lord. Well, obviously, he doesn't fear the Lord enough, does he? Because he's disobedient, heading in the opposite direction. When God called him to go east, he went west. He says, my God made the sea and the dry land, yet Jonah thinks that there's a place where he'll get beyond God's scope and beyond his presence. Jonah had a good understanding of God, but he didn't live like it. His life was inconsistent with what he professed to believe. Sound familiar? How many of us are guilty of doing that exact same thing? How many of us affirm on one hand that God is in control, that he is in control everywhere, that he's in control over all things, yet on the other hand, our lives don't match the truths we confess. There is an inconsistency with what we say and the way we live. You may say, well, not me. I don't know who you're talking about. My life is consistent with what I say I believe. Really, do you ever worry? When we are consumed with worry, do you realize that we show that we are doubting that God is really in control everywhere and over all things and that he's working all things for good to those who love him who are called according to his purpose? You ever try to handle problems on your own without consulting God? 
times we do this. And when we do this, we show by our actions that we truly think that our circumstances are in our hands. Those actions contradict what we say we believe. And I'm sure if we went around the room this morning and we polled the believers in here, most, if not all of you, would say that serving God is the most important thing in life because only what's done for Him matters for eternity. Yet are you making serving Him a priority in your life? You see? Inconsistency. Jonah 1, we learn that God is sovereign. And here in this passage, we learn that He is sovereign over all things. The key is, do we live like it? Not just do you affirm it, though that's important, that's essential. It's incomplete. You must affirm it, but the life you live must also reflect that you believe it. One more great truth we learn from this chapter on God's sovereignty not only is he sovereign everywhere over all things but God is also sovereign over us he's sovereign over us he rules everywhere over everything and he also has authority over us when the sailors learn that Jonah is the reason for the storm notice how they respond in verses 10 through 16 Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, What is it that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous, and he said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, notice these guys are pretty gracious, aren't they? We often think that they just hoist him up and over. You said so, Jonah, and and over right away, but they don't, do they? They don't. They try by their own efforts to get out of this storm. Look at verse 13. Nevertheless, the men rode hard, trying to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. So it's not working. Verse 14. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it has pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of a fish for three days and for three nights. So Jonah and this men, just a recap here, they're on this boat. And this storm comes upon them, and it's getting more and more fierce by the moment. And and the men know that Jonah is the cause for this storm because he tells them. So they ask Jonah, what do we need to do, Jonah, to appease your God? And Jonah says, you got to throw me overboard into the sea, and then God will be pacified his wrath will be satisfied now they don't want to do it at first they try all they can to get to dry land but it's not working so they hoist Jonah up and throw him over the side into the sea and when Jonah hits the water the storm ceases now there is a key truth that we learn here 
You see, throughout the first part of this story, Jonah is trying to call the shots, right? You have Jonah bound and determined he is not going to Nineveh, even though that's what God called him to do. So he takes a boat, and he heads out in the opposite direction. Jonah wanted to call the shots, didn't he? He wanted to be the king over his life. But what we learn in this story is Jonah is not in the driver's seat. He's not. God is sovereign over Jonah. God is sovereign over everyone. And folks, God is sovereign over us. He is. He is the king. He is the true authority over Jonah. And God shows this by, fleeing, by, by pursuing this, this fleeing prophet and by punishing him for his disobedience. This is one thing that's, that's also clear throughout the scriptures, and it's clear in this story, folks. God is sovereign over everyone. God is sovereign over us. And not only that, but his wrath is also set against all people who are going at life on their own, apart from and opposed to him. God's wrath is set against this kind of disobedience. God's wrath is set against this type of sin. And this, in this story, we learn that God's wrath is, is set against Jonah for this very thing. And the only way to pacify, to satisfy God's wrath is if Jonah is punished. If he is thrown into the sea to his death. We see this with Jonah in this story, and you know what? We also see it with Nineveh as well, don't we? Remember in the first part of the book, God says that Nineveh's evil has come up before him, and what does God say about it? Does he say, no big deal? Does he overlook it? Does he sweep it under the rug? No. He says, I know about their evil, and I'm sending you, Jonah, to tell them that I'm opposed to them and their sin and that I want them to repent. We learn in the first part of this chapter that God is offended by sin. He is opposed to sin. He punishes sin. And guess what? This includes our sin as well, folks. It does. God's wrath is set against us because of our sin. God is sovereign over us, and his, and his wrath is set against us because all of us, as Scripture says, has fallen short of the glory of God. That's the bad news. But here's the good news. The good news is God has provided a person to pay the penalty for that sin so that we might not have to. And who is that person? The Lord Jesus. That's right. You see, Jesus is for us what Jonah was for the men on the boat. Think about this for a moment. Jonah had sinned against God. Now, that's not like Christ. But he had sinned against God, and God punished Jonah along with all of those who were associated with him on the boat. Now, they weren't necessarily innocent, were they? They didn't do what Jonah did, but they weren't followers of the one true God. They were followers of their own God, so they're not, they're, they're, they're not innocent in the matter. And they are like us and Adam, Right? Adam's sin. And all of us pay the price for that sin, but of course we're not innocent either, are we? Scripture is clear that not in a literal sense, but in a very real way, we were with him sinning in the beginning, and all of us repeat the sin of Adam. We do. 
on a daily basis. So in this book, we see that Jonah was like Adam in that he sinned. And his sin brought about God's wrath on him and all of those associated with him. But we also see that Jonah is a Christ-type figure as well, don't we? Like Christ was sacrificed to satisfy God's wrath, Jonah being thrown into the sea, calmed the storm, and spared the lives of others on the ship. Folks, listen, I want you to get this. Christ is our Jonah. Christ is our Jonah. He, in a figurative sense, was thrown into the sea by being put on the cross for us to satisfy God's wrath for us. Look at Matthew chapter 12, verse 40. Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Just as Jonah endured God's wrath by being thrown into the sea, Jesus says here in Matthew, I'm going to endure the wrath of God for you. And he did it. He willingly went to the cross. He willingly was put to death. And he endured God's wrath for us in our place. So that our sin could be transferred to him. So that his righteousness could be transferred to us. So that God's wrath could be turned away from us. Here's how Paul put it. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he says, listen to this. For our sake, he made him, God made Christ to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Listen, Jesus was unlike Jonah in this way. He was without sin. He was not deserving of God's wrath, yet God made him to be sin for us. He treated him like a sinner for our sakes. He placed our sin upon him and punished him in our place so that in turn we might become righteous if we make Christ the Lord of our life. This is what, the great, this is, what is called the great exchange. Our sin transferred to Jesus, his righteousness transferred to us. What a wonderful gift that is. If you're here this morning and you are not trusting in Christ for your salvation, listen, Scripture is clear that you're like the men on the boat in the midst of a storm. You're a sinner that stands against God because of your association with Adam and you have his wrath set against you. Yet Scripture is also clear, folks, if we will trust in Christ alone if we will turn from our sins, and if we will make him the Lord of our life, we can have our sin transferred to Christ and his righteousness transferred to us so that we can have the storm in our life calm, so that we can once again be made right with God, so that we can have his wrath turned away from us and so that we can become a child of his. If you've never made this decision, I pray that you would this morning. Pray that today would be the day of your salvation. Let's pray.